2: In the 1970s, Led Zeppelin became the biggest band in the world, gods of rock whose music was impeccable and whose live shows were otherworldly. The band's 1977 tour was one of the most anticipated in history, and Northeast Ohio had just the venue for such a prodigious band. Richfield Coliseum had hosted a who's who of music's biggest acts. Led Zeppelin's two-night stand in April 1977 was a must-see and would produce one of the most coveted bootleg recordings in music history. You're listening to CLE Rocks. And this is the story of how a band and a music venue came together during a rock and roll era that was like no other. Led Zeppelin officially formed in 1968, led by Jimmy Page, best known for his time in the Yardbirds, playing dual lead guitar with Jeff Beck. Page would go on to recruit three players to help round out what many fans would consider the perfect rock band. A session player named John Paul Jones on bass, former Band of Joy member John Bonham on drums, and Bonham's bandmate, a singer named Robert Plant. The first song Led Zeppelin ever played together was Train Kept a-Rollin', Johnny Burnett's jump blues anthem that the Yardbirds had famously covered. Zeppelin's debut album arrived in January 1969, it was panned by critics. In his review of the album, Rolling Stone's John Mendelson called Page limited as a producer and the band a twin of the Jeff Beck Group. Mendelson wrote, if they're to help fill the void created by the demise of Cream, Led Zeppelin will have to find a producer and editor and some material worthy of their collective attention. Fan reaction, such as that of Northeast Ohio resident and vinyl collector Craig Bland, was much different.
1: I was with my cousin, and we went to a guy's house. It was like a small party, and I'm a kid then, all these people are probably 16, 17, and I remember the guy saying, hey, have you heard this album? Listen to this. And he put on Led Zeppelin One and I remember days and Confused coming on, and I thought, my God, we're having some kind of satanic seance here, and I was mesmerized by the album cover being the Hindenburg, so that was my first taste of them was that. And yeah, they were a hell of a lot different than the Beatles.
2: Seeing Led Zeppelin live cemented the band's status as something special. John Gorman, future operations director for Cleveland's WMMS, was finishing up college in Boston when he discovered Led Zeppelin in 1969.
3: Well, I I, I actually saw them in Boston. In fact, when I got the tickets, uh, they they played a place called the Boston Tea Party, which uh, held about 300 people. And uh, when I bought the tickets at the time, uh, the tickets read the, the New Yardbirds, they had not. They the, the the show was actually booked before they they settled on the name Led Zeppelin, and uh, it, it was just an amazing show. Imagine being in a place where I, I was actually right at the front. There was no there were no seats. It was a 300-seat sort of, a, uh, you know, open club. And uh, that was the first time I saw them, and that, that blew me away. At the time, it was, you know, it, this, this was the beginning of the guitar guy. You know, Eric Clapton, uh, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page. And, uh, you know, Jeff Beck left the uh, the Yardbirds, and Jimmy Page took over. And you had the people that were following Jeff Beck and said, he's going to be the, the big star. And then you had other people who were looking at Jimmy Page, and he's going to be the big star. And it was funny because, you know, in Jeff Beck's first solo album, he did You Shook Me and uh, Led Zeppelin did the same song. Uh, it, you know, I think it was a Willie Dixon song, and they did the same song on their first album. So, you know, there was... And, and little did people know that, you know, Jeff Beck and and Jimmy Page still continued their friendship. In fact, Jimmy Page is uncredited, but he played on uh, Bex Bolero on uh, Jeff Beck's first album. But it, it was still at a time when, uh, you know, you, you, you had the guitar gods, and, and the three big ones were Clapton Beck and uh, Jimmy Page.
2: With the Beatles breaking up and the Rolling Stones just hitting their creative stride, Led Zeppelin entered the 1970s as the biggest band in the world and was only getting bigger.
3: They were right up there with the Rolling Stones. I mean, they were one of the biggest bands. I mean, it was, it was like, it, it, by that time, it was the... The, you know, before the Beatles broke up, was the Beatles, the Stones, and and and, and Led Zeppelin. Led, Led Zeppelin just came out of nowhere. They were so fantastic. I mean, that, that first album, uh, you know, really captured everybody. And when they followed up with an equally strong album, I mean, it, it just cemented them. You know, they were one of the first rock superstars.
2: As Led Zeppelin's career was taking off, Cleveland was reaching its peak as a music city. WMMS had grown into one of the most important radio stations in the country. Music venues like the Agora, Music Hall, and Allen Theater were hosting acts on the verge of big breakthroughs, including Bruce Springsteen, Black Sabbath, Patti Smith, and David Bowie, who played his first U.S. show in Cleveland in September 1972. Still, the area lacked a music venue the magnitude of other cities. That's when Nick Miletti owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, developed the idea for Richfield Coliseum, which would become ground zero for major live events in the Midwest. Music historian author Peter Shikarian recalls the venue's early history.
0: You know, I mean, it was like sort of the epicenter, and I think that's a lot of what Nick Malletti wanted when he opened the building. He wanted it to be pomp and circumstance. He had convinced himself that at some point Cleveland and Akron were going to eventually merge into this gigantic metropolis. Um, I, he eventually thought that because those two cities would merge, that Richfield would sort of be like the middle of this gigantic you know, metropolis that we would maybe turn into, like, the Twin Cities, you know, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or we'd be on some trajectory like that. A lot of people will complain about that building as, you know, not being a sonic delight, not, you know, beautiful for concourses, kind of a log jam for any event because there was one concourse serving both levels. The sight lines weren't great. But, you know, as anybody else will tell you, you know, I think, you know, add a few beers, we'll travel some of that was a part of it for sure. Uh, it was a bit of a right place, right time kind of thing as far as the building goes. But again, I think that speaks to uh, that time period. You know, 1974 when that building opened up, rock and roll was really exploding and sort of shifting from uh, what it was emerging as in the 60s as being counterculture to sort of being more absorbed as this gigantic cultural, pop cultural phenomenon that it became. And, you know, obviously in the 70s and into the 80s, the the corporate people sort of took notice and figured there was a way to make it bigger and faster and more. And so that was going to keep rolling as long as uh, there were audiences to see it.
2: Legendary crooner Frank Sinatra would play the first concert at Richfield Coliseum in October 1974. In the first year, the venue would host the likes of Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Santana, Elvis Presley, the Eagles, and Led Zeppelin on the band's 1975 tour. As Chakarian remarks, things only got bigger as the 1970s carried on.
0: It's important to... To know just how many different artists really sort of, I don't want to say cut their teeth, because some of them had already cut their teeth by then. Springsteen played 14 shows at the Richfield Coliseum uh, during his, his ongoing career. The December 31st, 78, January 1st, 79 sort of cemented that legend, that special relationship, if you will, that Cleveland has had with Springsteen from that 1978 Agora concert. But, you know, Aerosmith played there 12 times. And in July of 1988, they introduced the Guns N' Roses. That's a big deal. Kiss played 12 concerts there, including a really huge Rush, which basically, if it was not for Cleveland, Rush would not have maybe broken the way that it did. They played 13 concerts during that time period. And of all kinds of other, like,
2: really, you know, sort of big and important shows that happened in that 20-year span. Richfield Coliseum's impact on Northeast Ohio was tremendous. John Gorman recalls it solidified Cleveland as one of the great rock and roll cities in North America.
3: We didn't have the, the largest, yeah, you know, the, the 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 largest venue at the time uh, was Blossom. Uh, in those days, Blossom was limited as to the amount of rock and roll acts that were played there. So, Public Hall, for all practical purposes, was the largest venue in the region for regular concerts. So when the Coliseum opened, it just it, it was really a venue that was very much needed in Cleveland. The Cleveland audiences at the time were probably the best rock audience that that a band could hope for because this, this this city was very much into rock and roll, very much into new music. And uh, you know, like a band like Roxy Music would come to town, and you know they'd say, well, here's a here's a song off their new album, and they start to play it, and everybody was being applauded. And you know, you look at a lot of these bands. They already know the song. But that was the Cleveland Islands. The Cleveland Islands was very, very rock-oriented and very much into uh, the music at the time.
2: Several high-profile rock and roll tours took place in 1977, but none were more anticipated than Led Zeppelin's North American run. The tour would become Led Zeppelin's biggest ever, with tickets selling out in record time. Craig Glan recalls the chaos of attending a show in Cincinnati and then hearing about the show at Richfield Coliseum in April.
1: Three buddies and mine went to see him at Cincinnati, and um, we're probably, just to give you yeah, the magnitude, we're probably the first 10 people to try to get in one of the doors. It was all general admission. So one of the doors starts opening up, and some dude is trapped between the door and the handrail, so the door can't open fully. Well, everybody behind it starts pushing. So I was lifted off the ground, being pushed so hard I couldn't breathe. I couldn't draw a breath. It, it, it Today is the greatest thing I've ever been to. It, they were unbelievable loud and bombastic and three and a half hours so i had a buddy who saw zeppelin there that next week at richfield and he says i'm on 271 that damn two-lane traffic freeway we're backed up because i can see richfield but i'm still you know miles away he says next thing i know these black limos four of them go speeding by me on my left side in the berm in the median." So he said, F- it, I'm going with them. So he says, I got in that median and followed Led Zeppelin's limos till I got, you know, almost to the end. And of course, I had to get off because the cops were all over
2: me. Led Zeppelin's shows had become the stuff of legend by the time the band returned to Richfield Coliseum. Yet behind the scenes, the band members fully embodied the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The 1977 tour was full of backstage turmoil. Fan arrests became regular occurrence. Heroin had become such a part of the band's life that doctors would accompany Led Zeppelin on tour to administer prescriptions to keep the guys going. Such a lifestyle would inevitably lead Led Zeppelin to Swingos, the hotel that would serve as the party palace for rock stars coming through Cleveland during the 1970s. The hotel would become immortalized in Cameron Crowe's film Almost Famous. Hi, welcome
0: to Swingos Celebrity Bowie!
2: Bowie! Bowie! Led Zeppelin would routinely run up bills over $10,000 at Swingos. The band arrived at the hotel the day before its April 27, 1977 gig at Richfield Coliseum. John Gorman recalls the band members setting up shop at Swingos and repeatedly phoning into WMMS's request line that night.
3: I do remember when, when Led Zeppelin played there. I, I know that they, they destroyed at least one room. I'm sure, I'm sure there was more. The interesting thing about Led Zeppelin is they came to they they came into Cleveland the day before the show. And uh, that night, you know, Betty Corbin did uh, 10 a.m. to uh, 2 a.m. She did that shift. Yeah, you know, we had a request line and we had a hotline. And, uh, you know, the hotline was ringing and she picked it up. And it was Led Zeppelin. It was, you know, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. They didn't want to be interviewed. They didn't want to go on the air. But they started to make requests. Hey, do you have this sign and this sign? And they were shocked that we had a lot of those signs. So they were called, they, they were requesting a lot of old blues signs. And, uh, you know, uh, some off-the-wall signs that you wouldn't expect. And they were shocked that we had those signs in the library.
2: Led Zeppelin's Wild Ways didn't prevent the band from putting on a show the following night. Photographer Janet Makovka took her place at the front of the stage, stationed below Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, and shot the entire three-hour gig.
4: It was great, because... There was no hurry. You could really, you could really look at Robert Plant and look at Jimmy Page and and see what was coming, or just just you know f- focus on the players um, and take your time. And I remember just, but it was between Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. And if you can imagine just being there for three hours and and watching these guys, it was um, it was like the ultimate rock and roll experience.
2: Makoska's photos of Plant are particularly striking. Just two years removed from a car accident, the iconic frontman stood tall, shirt open with a commanding presence unparalleled in rock history, save for the likes of Roger Daltrey or Freddie Mercury.
4: He was a majestic lion. I mean, you know, he, I don't know if he invented the look and the sound of of rock and roll singers for all time, but but Robert had it all done and just, he was very charismatic. I mean, he he was a big stud guy. I mean, he would just stand there and, and allow the women to admire him. There's there's a shot from that show. Robert was on stage, and someone floated a in, inflatable zeppelin, and they floated up to the stage, and he grabs it, <laughs> and for again that sixtieth of a second, it becomes this giant phallic symbol. <laughs> And and then he threw it back in the audience.
2: Some of the most infamous tales of Led Zeppelin's tours involved the band members' sexcapades, with young ladies of varying ages. Music reporter Lisa Robinson followed Zeppelin on multiple tours in the 70s, and quotes Plant as saying, I've met members of the opposite sex who were only eight or nine when we first went into the studio, and they're great f***s. McCoska bared witness to Plant's promiscuous ways while photographing that first night at Richfield Coliseum.
4: Robert had had some, uh, cohorts on stage. I don't know. They were roadies. He had one on the left and and on the right behind the speakers. And he would look into the audience and and pick out the girls, women. He wanted to come backstage afterwards. So it was like, you know, it was like going to the candy store. (laughs) So he'd stand there and he'd point and one of those guys would run out and give the little girl, woman, um a pass for backstage and you know so for three hours he was he was working it
2: whether april 27th 1977 was one of led zeppelin's greatest shows from a performance standpoint is something the band's diehard fans have debated for years but everyone agrees it is one of led zeppelin's most iconic concerts thanks to a coveted live bootleg known simply as destroyer The Bootleg is a sound recording of that first night, striking in its quality and one of the most sought-after concert recordings in music history. But how it came to fruition is shrouded in mystery, though Craig Bland has a theory.
1: I either read somewhere or heard somewhere how that how that got loose was they recorded most of their shows off the soundboard and John Bonham would take several of them and re-listen to them to hear himself and see if he could do any tweaking, and allegedly he got in some kind of argument fight with Paige, and he knew how much Paige hated bootlegs, so... He took the soundboard recording and tossed it to somebody and said, "Here, you take." It. And that's how it got
2: out. Indeed, one of the four LP versions of Destroyer even thanks Bonham for use of the tape. Yet, regardless of how it happened, Destroyer is an astonishing listen. The sound of the greatest band in the world at the height of its amplitude at a time when rock and roll was never bigger. They will. Bonham's drum solos hit even harder. Page's guitar work is piercing with passion. Even the mistakes, Page's fingers getting stuck in his guitar strings on sick again, coming in too early on Cashmere, are mesmerizing. During Battle of Evermore, Plant's vocals bounce off their own echo thanks to a perfectly timed vocal delay. John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page's interaction on the acoustic portion of the set is majestic. But the highlight of the night has to be Achilles' last stand. Page's magnum opus is delivered in fine form. It stands as one of the best live versions of the song you will ever hear. A performance of Stairway to Heaven would inspire a 10-minute standing ovation from the crowd before the band would return for an encore featuring rock and roll and trampled underfoot. The second night of Led Zeppelin's Richfield Run would also feature a fan recording that would be exchanged among collectors. Some argue Zeppelin put on a better show that second time around. However, the sound quality of night one remains unmatched. That was
0: Led Zeppelin' peak experience, peak live powers, and you know the, the wheels really came off
2: the band. Two weeks after a two-night stand in Oakland, Robert Plant received a phone call while in New Orleans. His five-year-old son had been rushed to the hospital with a respiratory infection and died. Plant returned to England, and the 1977 tour came to an abrupt end. It would be two years before Led Zeppelin would perform live again. But the band never toured in full. John Bottom would die on September twenty fifth, 1980. The band would officially call it quits two weeks later. Bland remembers anticipating Led Zeppelin's scheduled 1980 North American tour that never happened.
1: Yeah, I had submitted... Uh, Richfield Coliseum, they were going to come there, and you submitted a money order by mail, first come, first served to get tickets. And I got a um, a note that I had made it, and I was going to be sent
2: tickets, and then John Bonham died, next thing you know, I got my money back. Richfield Coliseum would remain a premier music venue well into the 1980s and 1990s, hosting legendary concerts by Bruce Springsteen, Prince, Michael Jackson, Metallica, Bon Jovi, U2, and numerous others.
0: You know, Springsteen in particular, because he's the one that sort of had the most rock and roll concerts there during the time the building was open, he often would come through Cleveland before he would hit big places like New York because he could try out things on audiences here and the audiences would eat it up kind of without judgment. So he could pretty much do no wrong here and I think would feel then emboldened to go from a place like cleveland into new york city or to a place like los angeles where he knew the critics were going to kind of have him under the microscope and he really his, his guts were all in check you know what i mean and i think for a lot of acts that came through cleveland they felt like they let their hair down here too and that's something that i think is part of that bygone era of this building being gone
2: too the storied venue would close its doors in 1994 after the Cleveland Cavaliers moved to a new sports complex in downtown Cleveland. The final concert at Richfield was headlined by Roger Daltrey. Richfield's final days would bring to an end perhaps the greatest era of live music Cleveland had ever seen.
3: That was one special time. You know, my theory with that is there was so much good music happening at that time, and I think it had everything to do with the fact it was the baby boom generation. There was just more People being born during that period of time, and as a result, you had a lot more musicians, and you had a lot more of an audience for them. That was why rock and roll and and, and rhythm and blues, and uh, you know all of all of these genres of music, all started to gel together and appeal to a wider audience.
2: Richfield would remain vacant until 1999 when it was torn down. The site that once housed the Coliseum is now a woodland area, but the remains of a parking lot and a section of Route 303 are enough for those who visited the venue during its heyday to remember it vividly.
0: It's kind of like when you have a picture hanging up on your wall and you haven't painted for a long time. You can sort of, like, when you take the picture off the wall, you can just see that sort of outline of whatever, you know, that grime or whatever, sort of where the... Picture is it sort of feels like that for me with the Coliseum. I can drive past there and, you know, there's space and you can see where it was, but you can almost kind of see in your mind's eye where it was too. Like your brain sort of makes that space kind of fill the ether and ozone around it, like where it would have been sort of filling where it was.
2: All interviews for this podcast were conducted by Cleveland.com. We'd like to thank John Gorman, Janet McCoska, Peter Chikarian, and Craig Bland for their contributions. Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. I'm Troy O. Smith. Until next time.
3: Good night. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.